become a Christian even as a teenager where I was tempted to believe in false teaching. And how it came was actually through a small group that was happening in the local church where I was. And a student had recommended from the youth ministry a book that he had read that seemed to get good reviews. And so we decided to study it as a group together. And here is what that false teaching sounded like, that deception sounded like in my life. The author was repainting the Christian faith. His goal was to rethink Christianity, to bring Christianity back to its bare bones or the most basic elements. The author defined doctrines and truths of the Bible. He defined the things like we were singing about, like the Trinity, like springs that hold up a trampoline. They're there for the greater goal of just finding our life in God. But, but the springs, the doctrine, the truths about who God is as he reveals himself in the scripture, these really are not that important. For example, this is what he says about the Trinity, like what we were just worshiping. It is a spring, and people jump for thousands of years without it. It was added later. We can take it out. We can examine it. We can discuss it. We can probe it. We can question it. It flexes, and it stretches. That's what he says about the Trinity. The nature of God flexes and stretches. We can just take it out. We can examine it like anything else. Or the virgin birth. What if that spring was seriously questioned? Could a person keep jumping? Using that trampoline metaphor. Could a person still love God? Could you still be a Christian? Everyone's interpretation is essentially his or her own opinion. Nobody is objective. Well, that's kind of quite contrary to what we just heard from Pastor Nitschke last week in 2 Peter. First of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And he's saying, oh, it's just a mere opinion. The only problem is it's God's opinion in the scriptures, God's interpretation of what he says is the virgin birth. And again, this false teaching questioned the fundamentals of the Christian faith that even we talked about last week, described them just like springs to human, of human interpretations, opinions that you can sort of take or leave just to get to God on your own terms. So I want you to think, why was that so appealing to me? as a teenager. And as I reflect, why was I at first gobbling this up and thinking, wow, this seems really intriguing. This seems really good. Well, first I began to think, well, I could safely ignore just about any Christian doctrine that made me feel uncomfortable or or didn't fit my understanding of how things should be. And that's just an interpretation. That's just a, a mere opinion. My opinion is just as valid as the Lord's and what he provides in his word. But the challenge, though, is as I began to read God's word and grew my faith, I began to see that, well, an interpretation was already provided. God's interpretation of what he intends to say according to his word in the Bible. And the Bible repeatedly mentions Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Like even in Second Peter, the Holy Spirit guided men to write the scriptures. And so is the doctrine of Trinity really like a negotiable spring that flexes and changes? Or the birth of Christ seems pretty clear. Mary is a virgin. She says she is. Joseph's actions seem to suggest she was. God's word and the angels and all her responses all point to the fact it's pretty clear Jesus was born of Mary and she was a virgin. And so is that really just an opinion I can take or leave? And and so, but I began to see, right, this really played to my desires. Second, in the deceptive way that he tried to present things, it it sort of presented things with openness, questions, rawness. There's no hard edges. There's no boundaries, right? And and again, this seemed very inclusive 
very appealing to me because I had many friends who didn't believe Jesus. And so if I believed Christian faith as revealed in the Bible, what that meant is these friends, unless they change and trust in Jesus, there's severe consequences for their life. But those boundaries would offend them, right? And, and, And so again, I have to decide what am I going to believe? But the false teaching was incredibly tempting. And as I began to read my Bible more and more, I read something very different than what this author had suggested in his book and had presented. But I'm thankful, again, for God's Word, how it provides us everything we need to even counteract this false teaching. And as a teenager, you start to see, you start to wrestle with these things. You're going to encounter false teaching in all kinds of ways in your life. And I encounter it just even as a new Christian. And by God's grace, He helped me to, again, to avoid false teaching. But this false false teaching, again, it was a human repainting of Christianity where the God of the Bible, the good news about Jesus, are abandoned so that I could please my own desires and I could live however I wanted according to my opinion and in a way especially that would be very kind according to and appealing to my friends who were not Christians. And that's, again, what was so deceptive, I think, about this false teaching is it really played to natural inclinations and desires of my own heart. And so it's a serious thing when someone tries to deceive us through false teaching. And so with that in mind, I want you to open your Bible to chapter 2 of First Peter, chapter 2 of Second Peter. That's page 183, page 183 of the back section of the Bible under the chair in front of you. Page 183, 2 Peter chapter 2. Our theme this year has been hope for everyday life. And this fall, we're planning to do a verse-by-verse study in the book of Second Peter, uh, talking about growing in grace and in knowledge growing in grace and in knowledge. And that comes from, again, 2 Peter 3.8, how the book, 3.18, how the book ends. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and in the day of eternity. Amen. And so God knows all of us need to grow in our knowledge and in the kindness of the Lord Jesus. And this is our command. We are to do this as believers. And as it turns out, as we read the book, that there are many different ways that followers of Jesus Christ can and do need to grow and change. For example, in the first chapter, where have we been already, right? Well, Peter reminds them, those who have received a faith of the same kinds as ours by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that all of this comes. How do we grow? It comes through the power of our God. And it's by his righteousness, it's his work in us that helps us to grow in our knowledge of God and in, our gra- in the grace of God as well. And, and Peter do- says it really doesn't matter if you've heard the good news of Jesus many, many times before, if you've heard the promises of God many, many times before, we all need to be reminded of these things in order to continue to grow as believers. And that's what he said in verses 12 through 15. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. And so you may be here today and say, I feel like I already know these things. False teaching's bad. Well, apparently you need to be reminded of it, right? And so you need to know these things. And he says, I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to also call these things to mind. And so one of the ways that we grow in grace and knowledge is to remind ourselves over and over as Christians of the beauty, of the power of our God, of his righteousness, of how we were included into his family by faith through Christ alone. We need to remind ourselves of these things. We need to remind ourselves of his precious promises, as well as the warnings that he gives for turning away from the good news of Jesus. Chapter 1 also emphasized the sufficiency of the scripture 
Second Peter 1.3 remind us that by his divine power, he's granted us everything, everything, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And he carries that idea of God giving us the sufficient scriptures, everything we need to grow and change. He continues that all the way to the end of the chapter where we saw, but first of all, no prophecy of scripture. It's not a matter of one's own interpretation. For, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so there's a reason we can have hope as Christians for growing in grace and knowledge. God's given us his word, everything we need for life and godliness, to live in a way that pleases him and to know the Lord. And it's absolutely reliable. Why? Because it's from God who doesn't change. See, the first chapter, it's very positive, right? Here's the foundations. Here's where you put your hope. Here's what you believe. Here's what you think about. Here's what you need to know. But then there's also the other side of the equation, which is really what chapter 2 is going to start to turn to, right? This is what was true. This is what you need to believe, and this is what you need to uh, avoid, to recognize and to avoid what is false. And and so follow along as I begin in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is the word of the Lord. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, the master referring to God, right, through Christ, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many who will follow their sensuality because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgments from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, Peter begins talking about discerning false teaching. And let's think about three necessary actions as believers that we take to guard against being spiritually deceived. And if you're thinking today, I am never spiritually deceived, you're deceived. Because God's word makes it clear, all since the Garden of Eden, we as human beings all do not listen to God as we ought and follow his word and instead are tempted to listen sometimes to our own opinions, the opinions of other people, or the opinions of all kinds of false teaching in our world. And so this is incredibly important for us to grow in our knowledge and grace. First is to be aware of the reality of false teachers. You need to be aware of the reality of false teachers. You see at the beginning that word, but at the beginning of chapter 2, they're shifting a logic from the true prophets to now false prophets, the negative, the good to now the bad that you need to be aware of. As Pastor Nitschke explained last week, right, that we're referring to the aspect of inspiration was talked about in chapter one. The Holy Spirit, he, we, we can trust God's word because the Holy Spirit inspired these men to speak from God, right? And so as Pastor Nietzsche explained, this is where we see like in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is inspired by God and therefore profitable for teaching, for repute, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's why we can grow. That's why we can grow in God's grace and in his knowledge. And that word again, inspired, means God breathed. And inspiration means it emphasizes the process for why we know the scriptures are without, without error because the Holy Spirit is guiding men so that they speak from God. But it also then implies the product. The scriptures then are therefore completely true and reliable and without error. 
And so we see, for example, as First Timothy, right, this is why the church can talk about being the pillar and support of the truth, because the truth isn't changing. The truth isn't shifting. The truth is what God has revealed in his word, and it's 100% reliable. And this is what we, again, proclaim as Christians. Or this is how Jude can talk about the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So this good news of faith of how we are saved and reconciled to God and given everything we need for life and godliness, it's not changing. Right? It's been passed down from generation. It doesn't need to be repainted. It's faithful. That's all great until we again see that chapter 2 verse 1 says, but false prophets. So there were true prophets guided by the Spirit who wrote as speaking from God. Well, this, of course, I think is supposed to grab our attention. Why? Because according to the rest of the verse, we see these false prophets came up all throughout the history in the Old Testament. Uh, again, among the people there, that phrase, I think, is Peter's recalling the past. Look to history to be reminded of all the false prophets and all the false teachers. So he says in Second Peter, false prophets also arose among the people. And I think he is referring to the regrettable reality of false teaching that it's played in the lives of God's people, and especially in the history of Israel, beginning first and foremost with Satan himself. Right? Satan himself, as John says, the father of lies is what Jesus says. He is a liar since the beginning. And we understand scripturally, false teaching comes from spiritual forces of darkness. Demonic forces are behind false teaching. It's not just physical realities. We read in Genesis 3, again, what was the temptation? Are you going to listen to God or someone else, namely the serpent? And Genesis says the, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And God said to the woman, indeed has God said. Right? So there's what the false teacher is really questioning. Has God really said that? And to get you to believe something contrary to what God has made known through his word. And a few verses later in that conversation, Eve, right? Satan's told Eve, you won't surely die. And that is, again, perhaps one of the greatest false teachers uh, right, that's ever been proposed, right? And we see every chapter after that, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. And so when Adam and Eve had to decide is would they believe what was true and would they believe what was false, especially pertaining to what God had revealed. And so Peter wanted them to be reveal, reminding themselves of this reality. But you also see in the nation of his, Israel's earliest days, this was a common temptation. And that all Christians, right, and the believers at that time needed to be aware of it. So, for example, in, even for Moses, before they enter the promised land, as they're about to go and take the land that God is giving them, Moses is reminding them of the reality that false teachers are going to rise up. It's going to happen. It's assumed based on the commands of he's saying, this is what you do with them when it does happen. And he says, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. How? Well, to seduce you from the way. This is what they do. Seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. And so you shall purge the evil among you. Again, so this becomes a common theme where people are tempted to believe God's word has made very clear what they are to think and believe about God and what they are to do in order to please him. And then false teachers again are saying, well, did God really say that? Here's instead what I think you should do. And that's a common temptation in our life. And so as you think about those in your life, just who are the people that often are first to question 
and doubt God's word, just the clarity of which God's word speaks, is their heart and posture the way sort of to always question it? Those are the people I think you just have to especially be on guard in your life about the influence that they might have in helping you and change the way in which you think about God's word and its place in your life. But there's numerous examples that we can point to of false teaching. For example, one example that I'm, I'm going to give especially is relates to this is when Israel was in captivity in Babylon. And so God had a promise that there would be 70 years of captivity in the foreign nation of Babylon. Well, at that time, there arose a false prophet. So God had really told them it's going to be 70 years. You can count on it. 70 years for sure. Well, yet some false prophets arose. One of them named Hananiah. Here's what he said. It's only going to be two years. Jeremiah 28, 11, Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, thus says the Lord, even so will I break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations. So here's the false prophet. Others had said 70 years. That's what God's word said. Here's Hananiah. It's going to only be two. Well, that simply was not true. That was a false prophecy. Here's what happened a few verses later. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. And you made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you're going to die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. And so Hananiah the prophet died and in the same year, in the seventh month, didn't turn out well for him, right? But God made sure that they understood this was a false prophet. It was contrary to what God had revealed. And Peter was right. False prophets also arose among the people. That's his point. But you even see it during the life of Christ. For example, some of the strongest rebukes were against these same kinds of people, especially the the religious teachers in Jesus' day, who said they knew the Scriptures and then yet denied that Jesus was the Son of God, the Christ, in whom all the Scriptures point. And, And so Jesus is calling them false teachers. Why? Because they're denying the truth of the Scriptures that are speak about him. And in his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. But notice what he says about their desires, who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And so in their teaching, they rejected Jesus as the son of God and they lived contrary to his commandments. And Jesus rebuked them. And so we ought to be aware of this reality But why would God allow things like this? Why would God allow, again, false teaching? What's the purpose of false teaching even coming among the the people of God? Well, one answer in the scriptures is 1 Corinthians 11, 19. For there must always be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Those who truly know the Lord, listen to his word and follow Factions and false teachings has a way, again, of proving out those who have genuineness of faith. And are they going to follow and trust God's word, even when it's contrary to what uh, the world or their own desires might say? And so false teaching really gives you an opportunity as a Christian to think, you know, in the power of the Holy Spirit, I get to stretch my theological muscles. What do I believe about what God's word says about this issue? And am I willing to stand for it firmly in face of consequences? Well, it it happened throughout the Old Testament false teaching. It happened in the life of Christ. But notice, what does Peter go on to say in the very next part of the verse? Not just among them in the past, 
But there's actually a kind of a scary promise here because of the present reality in the church. False prophets arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you. And you know that had to break Peter's heart. Peter loves the church. Peter had been part of the birth of the first church started in the book of Acts. And imagine how it would impact him at the end of his life to to say that false teaching wasn't just something that was happening in his day, but even after he's gone and he departs to be with Christ, he knows that the church is going to be plagued by false teachers as well. And the church has to be on guard. And please notice the level of certainty. It's not there might be. He said there will be. And what does he say that they will do then? Because of their methodology, they're going to secretly introduce destructive heresies. Don't you see the sinister nature? The, the fact is that we have to be on guard that it can happen here in our church, among us. And we have to be on guard as Christians. And again, sometimes this type of teaching and thinking can occur in a lot of subtle ways. Through the years, I've seen examples where I've had individuals come up and say, you're teaching a works-based gospel by commanding people to repent and believe in Jesus. You shouldn't command people to commend and repent in Jesus because you're leading them to think that it's by something that they do that they're saved. And that sounds really spiritual, right? I don't want to teach a works-based religion. I don't want to teach, but, but the problem with that, again, is God ordains both the ends, the salvation of the person, and God ordains the means. God works in and through how he says he's going to save people, which is through the preaching of the gospel and commanding people to listen and obey and trust in Jesus. And so Jesus has no problem saying things like, this is the work of God. This is Jesus' words. This is the work of God. It's God's work that you believe in him, the Son of Man. And so we have to, again, be on guard against the false teaching can plague us in all kinds of ways, even as Christians. And sometimes it can be very, very subtle. Even in our church's history, there was a time a number of years ago where Pastor Virus was seeking to lead our church to make some changes in our philosophy of music and in worship. And again, as Honestly, it was a challenging season, especially for our senior pastor. It took an entire summer. They taught the Word of God says about that. And not everybody liked what was being said about the, the, some freedom that the Scripture gives in, for example, of music and instruments in worship. And, and well, one of the individuals at that time had distributed a book that was really in total contrary to what Pastor Viers had been teaching those following weeks. And again, and even suggested things like um, any piece of music that tempted you to respond in a physical manner with your body, right? Like the tapping of your foot was not pleasing to the Lord. Um, and again, is, uh, part of this is not a biblical view of our body, a biblical view of God's gifts of creation and how we have to use them to worship him. But again, it would be one thing for somebody, right, to do that publicly, to have those conversations publicly, to talk with the pastors in person or express concerns. We hope that if you have concerns with what we're teaching, that you come and talk to us about it. But notice what the text says. It's often secretly, secretly. And that's what was happening in this case, where Pastor Byers is away, and then at that time, secretly introducing other teaching that was contrary to the teaching of the church. Now, uh, again, what does God's Word tell us we should be? Like noble Bereans, who in Thessalonica, they received the word with great eagerness, but they examined the scripture daily to see whether these things were so. 
And so we hope that all of our church family, like even to you today, as you listen to what I am teaching, that you look at 2 Peter 1, and I hope your text, your nose is in the Bible, and you're looking at what the verse says and saying, is that what it says? See, such false teaching can be secretly introduced, and we need to be aware on guard because of its extent, because of its extent. 2 Peter 2.1 says, Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So it goes to the extent that it actually causes people to deny the Lord, right? And, and to deny what God has done on their account. And, and remember, Peter had introduced himself at the beginning of the book as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Well, false teachers suggest that you can be a Christian without acknowledging Jesus as the Lord of your life. False teachers believe that you can call yourself a Christian, you can call yourself as a servant of God, and yet by your actions, you can live like he's not your greatest allegiance. And so by your allegiances, you can deny him as your master. Well, that's heresy. See, heresy denotes an opinion, especially a self-willed opinion, which is substituted for submission to the power of the truth. It leads to division, it leads to the formation of sex. It's contrary to what God's word reveals. So what Peter is arguing for here, especially, affects his readers, it affects us as a church, right? The answer is that we need to grow in discernment, in caution, in a level of carefulness about who and what we're listening to in our life, right? So think about the podcasts, right? Think about, uh, again, the radio shows, the YouTube channels, and especially the books even that you might read. The reality is that some of the greatest Christians, Christian books on the shelves of bookstores and recommended by people may not actually be accurately reflecting the judgments of the scriptures. And so again, I think about, uh, again, this is just a humbling reminder in my own life of the teenage youth group that I was a part of, right? This was one of the best-selling books at the time. You know, why did this teenager get it? Probably because he went to the Christian store, he looked at it and says, wow, over a million copies sold. That's, we should probably read that one, right? And, but then it's very contrary to what God's word says, and so to be discerning. And so especially when in people in your life are minimizing sin, suggesting not obeying the clear teachings of scriptures, especially be on guard of that in your life. One of the best defenses is really knowing your Bible well. And so one practical reality as a goal could be even the rest of this year, just working your way through, trying to read the New Testament by the end of this year and just summarizing just at a high level, one to two sentences, what is this book about? What are some of the main themes of the book so that I understand the context and the purpose that this book was written for? Because a lot of times what happens with false teaching, people just come and pick a verse out of that book without any sort of the context, the understanding of why the book was written, and again, and then to manipulate and use it for their own purposes. And so I would encourage you, that could be if you've never read through the New Testament on your own, to do that. And then just to summarize, again, high-level view, not a detailed outline, just what is this book about? And to be able to say that and know what that is about each book of the Bible. And we have some classes, Faith Community Institute classes, throughout the week on Wednesday nights that do some deep-dive Bible studies in all types of books of the Bible that you may not be as familiar with. Use those resources that God has given you. You can look back on old sermon series on special books that we've already done through or taught through as a sermon series. Again, that can help you grow in your knowledge and understanding of God's Word. So we need to be aware of the reality of false teaching. And then second, to be concerned about the response of false teaching. Be concerned about the response to false teaching. 
Why is false teaching so concerning? Well, it's not because just like a few people follow it. Many will follow their sensuality, he says. Many. Notice what characterizes the false teacher is their sensuality, the unrestrained, the the debauched conduct, the sexual immorality. They don't submit to Christ. And so many will follow these self-made religions and teachers. Uh, Again, you just think about the, the false religion of Islam. How many people follow that? You think about the false religion of Buddhism. How many people follow that false teaching? The false teaching of Hinduism. How many people follow the false teaching of Hinduism? The false teaching of Mormonism. How many people follow the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? It's not a few people. Deception is everywhere. And it is so easy and tempting for us to be deceived in all kinds of ways. And so consider the times in your life where you were deceived by false teaching. I think that helps you to have compassion for those right, who may be deceived right now in your life. To think of what does this false teaching prey upon in their desires? How is it sweeping them? What, what are the enticements that the false teaching provides? Because I think as you've humbly evaluated those things in your life for how God has opened your eyes to see by his word and by his kindness to see the truth, that you're able then to better show compassion, right? And point them to the scriptures that really are deceiving them, right? According to God's ways. One of the false teaching, again, we think about in our soldier. What is the sensuality that is captivating so many today? Well, especially, right, the gender and sexuality issues and the false teaching associated with that, that how many people are buying into the definition of the world's view of gender and sexuality. And again, it appeals to people's sensuality. That's why it's so desirable. It appeals to debased desires, it's like what Romans 1, 18 through 25 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. God made it evident to them. This is not a secret. God's ways, his truths are clearly seen and clearly known. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. God goes on to say, therefore God gave them over in the lust, right? There's the sensuality, right? It appeals to these lusts that we have the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And notice the deception. Where's the false teaching? For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. If you'd like to do more study, especially on some of the the sexuality issues and the lies, there's one resource that I would recommend for you by Professor Carl Truman, The Rise and Fall of the Modern Self. Again, the book may be a little heavy to read, but it's very helpful. You can find a summary, if you may not have time to read the whole thing, of how this book especially speaks into some of the cultural deceptions in this false teaching in our world today. So that might be a great resource to help you just think through clearly some of what's happening in our culture, in our world. 
Again, you can find uh, also an abridged version that sort of summarizes. It's not as a, a, a sort of a smaller version of the original book that can be also a helpful resource that you might use, Strange New World. Again, and there's lots of uh, blogs and resources that kind of uh, address uh, some of these sexuality issues, especially today, and how that affects how we think about identity, our purpose, um, how we glorify God in our bodies. And so again, this, this, this issue is not going away. But I want to read one of the, the quotes that I, I think was helpful for this one author who had wrote Morris. He says, you're not crazy for feeling disoriented right now. Something has changed dramatically in our society. Watching a man win a women's sporting championship, seeing a satire account banned from Twitter for referring to a male public official as a man, and hearing a Supreme Court nominee refuse to define woman in her confirmation hearing is all strange, very strange. And it raises the urgent question of how we got to this point and why it seems that it happened so quickly. And what Peter wants us to humbly say is, how did we get to this point? Lots of false teaching and being led astray, deceiving, believing lies about things that especially prey upon sinful desires. And he went on to observe that millions of our neighbors now believe that human beings can sculpt themselves into whatever they desire, if necessary, through hormones, surgery, and legislation. Don't you see that's the idolatry of false teaching? I can shape I can craft myself to be whatever fits my sensual desires, even if it's contrary to God's word. But if we don't stand up to it and be on guard against us, the very fact is we can find ourselves right in the middle of 2 Peter 2 too. Many can follow the sensuality. And may God protect and deliver us from that because Peter goes on to say the consequences is that the way of truth will be maligned. False teachers and the sensuality lead many to malign the way of truth. Maligned means like blaspheme, uh, defame, slander. And so the idea of they're disrespecting God and his right doctrine in the gospel by the ways that they live their life. And so they're dishonoring the beauty of God's ways and they're dishonoring his holy commandments by the ways that they live. What does it look like to dishonor the beauty of God's ways by our lives? What does that look like to like malign the beauty of God? Well, I kind of imagine it, many of us may have been there. It's like that drunk person on somebody else's wedding day whose actions dishonor the love that's displayed where all the guests are distracted as they look at the debauched conduct and all the glory of this beautiful day and love is distracted from, right, the couple and the blessing of marriage and the blessing of covenant love, and what is everybody else focused on? They're staring at this drunk person, right? I mean, that's what, like, false teaching does to the beauty of God's ways. Or I kind of think of a, a few years ago, if you remember, there was, like, those vandals who went through Yosemite Park, and they, like, spray-painted blue, like, you know, one of the universities, like, on all the rocks as they went through, and again, what, what, what is that doing? Well, it's kind of the idea, again, thinking that like the glory that they're painting, right? They're repainting Christianity. That's what the false teachers are doing, right? Well, and here's what are these vandals doing, right? They're literally repainting, right, on these rocks as if that's more beautiful than what God had created in me, right? And again, as I just think of when we think of what does maligning the beauty of God's ways look like? It, it's horrible, right? People, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be desirable, it, right? it pollutes our understanding of what God and the beauty of his ways are. So what might that look like to blaspheme the glory of Jesus Christ, his revealed beauty in the word of God? How can that happen here? 
How can that happen here us in our church? Well, I think one answer can be through something like a school, right? We, I'm so thankful. My children go to an excellent Christian school. I'm so thankful for our Christian teachers and the excellent education they receive at Faith Christian School. But schools can be one of the ways, right, if we're not vigilant to guard against teaching and what we're receiving, right, that easily can be tempting for people to think and believe all kinds of things from a Christian philosophy of education that would be contrary to what God's Word would say. And so to continue to be vigilant, right, as parents, as a church, to making sure that even our philosophies of education are in accordance with what God's Word would teach. Another answer, I think, especially for where God has us as a church is through counseling. By God's grace, we have been somewhat in a position of stewardship in the biblical counseling movement in the world for the sufficiency of Scripture, for handling life's problems. But it would be wise for us to remember again that like Warren Wearsby says in the book, The Integrity Crisis, right? pastors and churches can make a big mistake when we start believing our own press clippings or just because of God's kindness and working in and through us in all kinds of ways that we can somehow sort of not be careful to guard, again, our teaching, to guard our doctrine and look over our lives and doctrine closely. Because when you mix pride with a lust for approval, that can be a very dangerous combination for a local church. And so we, want, we don't want to be thinking we're going to be avant-garde in our understanding of biblical counseling. No, we're going to hold fast the faithful word that's been entrusted to us and to the saints for generations. But what might this look like? Like the author who was repainting the Christian faith in a counseling realm, right? You can have people who are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, right? There are mysteries about the way that God has made man and our souls and our bodies and how these things work, but God has revealed everything that we need. And yet human beings, we can always have this desire, I feel like I need to learn more. And right, that not necessarily sinful, but it can become sinful when I start denying what God has revealed in his word. It's kind of like what Luke observes in Acts 17. All the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. That maybe characterized a lot of people in your life, your life at times maybe, right? Where you, you've heard, right, the, the gospel over and over and over again. You've heard about Christian faith as revealed in the scriptures over and over and over again. And you're saying, I just want it a new way, right? I want it a refreshing way. Right? And if you're not on guard, right, there's a reality of there can be some concerns with sort of something being always new. Peter says apparently we need to remember a lot what has already been revealed to us. One of the examples of this, especially in our counseling realm, is even something like this book. Um, this is The Body Keeps the Score by Basil van der Kolk, a best-selling book. But again, this author doesn't come from a Christian worldview of believing a Biblical view of sin, biblical view of humanity and the nature of man, biblical view of our need for redemption and the gospel, and yet a best-selling book to really influence, right, the way in which we think about these things and how we might care for somebody who's gone through incredible suffering. But the main point of this book is the body keeps the score is that if memory of trauma is encoded in the viscera, the heartbreaking and gut-wrenching emotions and autoimmune disorders and skeletal muscular problems, and if the mind-brain visceral communication is the royal road to emotion regulation, this demands a radical shift in our therapeutic assumptions. Uh, the summary of his book is what is he trying to say is that your physical body can be determinatively causing immaterial responses, the inner man. 
Therefore, if certain things that have happened to you in your past, like suffering of extreme sorts, is triggered in some way, your body is determinative then for your response. And so now we have, for example, in the biblical counseling world, that you must be trauma-informed in order to counsel people according to God's Word. Do you think, do you do trauma-informed counseling? Which places us as Christians in somewhat of a dilemma, right? Because many of the Bible is filled with stories of people who've gone through incredible suffering. And as we saw, God's Word says God has given us everything sufficient for life and godliness, including helping others who've gone through incredible suffering and knowing what are God's purposes for this suffering? What, how can God use this suffering for good? How can you respond to this suffering even when it's been unjust? But the point is, in many of uh, the sense, we can call ourselves trauma-informed, but not in the sense that we've adopted all the conclusions of this author. But if you'd like to, to study a, a contrary view of this, I would encourage you. This is a paper written by Greg Gifford at Masters. If this is an area that especially you want to know more, um, you can use that and you can scan the code to read the paper. But I'm just going to summarize his conclusions, especially as he really dives into the scriptures and he sort of reveals this question, is that how the scriptures reveal that the body is determinative for our immaterial responses? The author says it's the author's conclusion that has been demonstrated that the body only causes physical responses and can only, here's a key word, influence immaterial responses. Of note, the body never causes immaterial response, and in this way, the body does not keep the score. The soul does. The point is, if we run into new emphasis in our world in all kinds of ways, whether it's related to counseling, whether it's related to education, there can be a temptation for us, again, because these are the newest things and what many people are accepting and saying, this is the latest. The temptation to say that then makes it true and right. And if we're not going back to God's word, what does God say about the scriptures? What does it say about God's nature? What does it say about man? What does it say about sin? Right? Thinking through those categories help you to guard against some of this false teaching. And then to know that because they're of the greed, you're going to be exploited. False teachers are often greedy, and they may be seeking to gain advantage of you. And again, that's one of the reasons I've loved following in the footsteps of Pastor Good and Doc Smith and Pastor Byers, who early on in the biblical counseling movement um, have not been seeking ways to monetize what we're doing as far as biblical counseling, offering counseling into our community for free for those who come. We're not charging weekly rates for them. Why? Because again, we want the word of God to go forth and to impact them in hearts and lives so that lives can be changed. But there's one more emphasis that flows out. And that's to be grieved about the future of false teachers. Be grieved about the future of false teachers. We see this come out in the last verse of the text, right? Why? Because they bring swift destruction upon themselves. Peter's not just concerned about false teaching, but he's also concerned about the false teachers and what's going to happen to them. There's consequences for being a false teacher, severe consequences. Their judgment, it's not idle. It's not going to hold off forever. Jesus Christ loves this church. He loves it too much to allow it to be idle. And it reminds us the next, the certainty about God's judgment. Their destruction is not asleep. Their destruction is not asleep. And yet at sometimes it seems like, wow, God, why, why aren't you dealing with this false judgment right now? This false teaching right now. But God reminds us, God will judge it. There's purposes for why he may allow it right now, but he will judge it. And he will show himself to be righteous. But Paul says this way to Second Timothy. But 
refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. And if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Do you have compassion and hope and pray for the repentance of false teachers? Right? The reality, again, all of us have been deceived by false teaching. We were all held captive to the devil. Right? We were slaves of sin and apart from Christ. And hearing right, the good news of somebody sharing the good news with us, we would be in the same position. We would have the same standing. Right? And there is only one way for them to be saved, and that's through faith in Christ. And to be grieved about those who are on that path, to pray for their repentance and to do what we can also to share what is true with them and to challenge and refute false teaching as appropriate in the hope that they might repent and come back to the truth. What are some of the positive takeaways of all this? Well, I hope that you would see the need to be a Berean, right? To really study the scriptures on your own and and to vet whatever you're hearing in podcasts, YouTube, reading in books, that you're really, it's causing you to constantly go back to God's word and say, is that what God's word says? Regardless of the pastor who's speaking, right, including what I'm saying today, right, thinking through and searching the scriptures to see what if I said is so, to, to two is to grow in your understanding of biblical truth and theology. Everyone is a theologian. You're all thinking and believing things about God. And are your thoughts and beliefs about God what are true as God reveals? And so growing and using some of the FCI classes, using uh, the Bible studies, the faith groups, the whole point of these are opportunities for you to grow in your understanding and your knowledge of the Lord. Because that's what God wants us to grow in our grace and our knowledge in Him. And so you might pick up one of those resources that I recommend it to expose your whole family to solid biblical teaching and resources and to be vigilant in just thinking of what are my children reading? What are we as a family regularly listening to, watching? Again, that can influence us in just introducing all kinds of deceptive things if we're not on guard to know how to combat them. Finally, this is why we also promote and support theological education as a church. We see the importance of growing men and women in their understanding so that they're effective Christian ministers. And so one of the things that even at Faith Church that many of you have sacrificially given to and supported over the years, right, is our Faith Bible Seminary, right? We have an accredited seminary in our local church. What a gift of God. And to think over a hundred men who've been trained for pastoral ministry, Right, so that they're able to hold fast to the Word of God and go share the Word of God and minister to the body of Christ. And we also have a Master's of Arts in Biblical Counseling program, right, equipping men and women to be faithful biblical counselors, holding fast the Word of God. Even just this last August, we had 29 MABC Master's of Arts in Biblical Counseling students graduating. Again, equipped to minister God's Word to those who are hurting. Right? And so this is why also, even as a church, I'm so thankful that they've supported even me to get advanced degrees to teach in the seminary and to be a blessing to our church in teaching. And so again, our, our church has been very sacrificial to give to institutions that are really promoting biblical education over the years because we see the importance for trained ministers to handle accurately God's word in order to build up the body of Christ. So I hope that as you think about, again, positive takeaways, how are you being alert against false teaching in your life? What are you doing to avoid it? Uh, What are you doing to proactively think about what you are thinking that's true and right and good according to God's word? And then are you being a Berean and growing in these things so that you're able to help 
those who may be even false teachers see what is the truth that they may repent. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for your kindness, your grace, and your mercy. Thank you that you're a God who in compassion has revealed to us the truth of your word and how all your word points to the truth of your Son and our need for Jesus Christ to save us from our sin, that we confess, Lord, that we are so easily deceived, so easily tempted, and if not for your mercy and for your Savior, our Savior Jesus, Lord, we would have no hope. But thank you that Jesus was not tempted in the ways that, Lord, that in sin, in the ways that we are, and deceived and, and believe lies, but instead responded to temptation righteously, continued to worship you, continued to obey you, continued to follow you all the way in obedience, even to death on a cross, Lord, so that we can be forgiven of our sin, so that the power of Christ can then be applied to us, and so we can have new life and the hope of resurrection, and then also, Lord, to be equipped fully by your Spirit and through your Word, to hold fast to your Word, to guard against this false teaching, and to continue to grow in their grace and knowledge of Jesus. We pray, uh, Lord, especially, that you would help us to apply these truths to our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would have hearts that are sensitive to false teaching in our world, that we'd be vigilant against it. And Father, also we would be grieved for those who are stuck in it, and it would lead us to a burden to share the truth and the good news of Jesus with them. And Father, we pray as we do this that the church would be strengthened, that the church would be built up, and we would continue to glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.